Welcome to I Hear Voices Theatre Company presents, coming to you tonight from the prestigious Radio Hall. But first, a word from our sponsors. Are you troubled by unsightly stains or an unsightly wife? Then you need the new Himmler Crippen Hague Rust Proof Acid Bath. Available in a range of sizes to suit all the many domestic and business day-to-day, perfectly ordinary, routine, and in no way suspicious or criminal activities that you may find yourself requiring a swift and leaves-no-trace large-scale dissolving solution for. Comes with a three-month warranty against rusting away mid-bath and dissolving your legs. The Himmler Crippen Hague Rust-Proof Acid Bath. If you're not completely satisfied, well, you can jolly well jump in it. And now... Himmler Crippen Haig presents The Adventures of Bentley Strange Trousers. Bentley Strange Trousers and a Quantum of Sporran, a serial in four episodes. Episode 2 The Retune of the King. Previously on Bentley Strange Trousers and a Quantum of Sporran. You, Heliotrope, claim the throne of England, but you are not part of the royal bloodline. Not of England, perhaps, but I am descended from Mary, Queen of Scots, and I have proof not only of that, but also of this. A secret agreement between Queens Elizabeth I and Mary that will prove the throne is in fact mine by right. And now, the direct continuation of that cliffhanger moment. England, 1569. Madam! Madam, I prithee answer! Oi, your great queenness, move your regal Scottish arse! What does that mean to disturb a prince's leisure time? Never did I tolerate such vulgar bangings in the court of France. I shall bite my tongue. You have a visitor, my Scottish queen. Is it a nobleman, handsome, a prince, ideally Catholic and possessed of well-formed shanks of goodly lengths? No, it's the Queen of England. You jest. I jest not, your majesty's Liz herself in her very virgin flesh. La reine, mon dieu! She has finally responded to my charmingly composed and most prettily penned epistles. Putetra, she brings news of my restoration to the Scottish throne and an end to this accursed English exile. Yeah, whatever. French is a baguette of frogs. Oh, and there's some poet with her as well. Here he comes now. Please stand prepared for the proclamation of the entirely unexpected and highly secretive arrival of Elizabeth I of England. Autographs and tatty merchandise available later in the castle gift shop. Oh, and I've got a play on next week. It's got a dog in it. Book now. You'll love it. Cheers, minstrels. Mary Stuart, I presume? Queen Elizabeth, dearest cuts, I recognise you from your many expensive, if over-flattering portraits. And might I say, they do you no justice. You are very tall. Extremely tall. Taller even than I had expected. How tall are you? I am at least six foot from toe to crown. You will forgive us, cause if from time to time we find that an excessive proportion for a woman. 
We manage perfectly in governing these lambs of ours at a stature of but five whole feet and six. Such reckless additional height strikes one as a typically Catholic indulgence, which, like all papal indulgences, is at best frivolous, at worst luxurious. Moreover, should we be composed as long as thee, the reckoning from our dressmaker alone would straight split our nation's purse. Hmm. You think six foot one is too tall for a well-dressed queen? I would warrant that six foot one be the very model height of all well-dressed queens that I've come across, <laughs> especially those that haunt the cock in Deptford. Dear Scuds, who is this strange, vexatious gentleman who musters all the stance and manners of a wit while saying naught that doth contain amusement? Oi, is she having a pop? Be quiet, Shakespeare. Our apologies for our subject. He is a playmaker, and thus used to being paid no heed. It is but their manner. His bawdy puns and quibbles be to him as shoes be to greater folk. Merely something employed to progress from point to point. <laughs> She's got your number, mate. Oh, satire, is it? I would add my quill now inked that I might note it down in case I do not hear its like again. Forsooth, I shall ink it now. As you can see, he is a most proficient transcriber of one's words and useful when one wishes to keep a record of one's discussions. How many words can Baldier manage? Almost 40. More if you allow him to include the rude ones, which in case of confusion we do not. Well, sweetest cards, to return to our earlier point, a woman cannot change her nature, and thus there is naught that can be done to remedy our standing a full head above you. Oh, Lord, madam. We would not mark that issue as entirely unresolvable. And as we now speak of issue, I have come to discuss the business of the royal succession. At last, you shall acknowledge my claim to succession to the English throne. Madam, I would you gave greater consideration to the task of regaining your own throne before speculating upon how to inherit mine. No. Should we die without issue, the best you can hope is for your son James to inherit. But at least he is being raised properly in the new religion by the Protestant Scottish Lord. You zapping curse? How dare they ask me so? Just because I was most unfairly implicated in the murder of my second husband, Lord Darnley, by my third husband, the Earl of Bothwell. Forsooth, she didn't half put it about. A pretty peep comedic bard. So, Queen Elizabeth, you acknowledge that even if my crown is forfeit, should you die without issue, my eldest child could, by right, succeed you. Eldest child? Because you have but one. Supposing, for example, we had another child, an older child, which until this point we had, for the sake of narrative contrivance, never mentioned. The child put it with our marriage with Francis II. The late... King of France? Blimey! Methinks me needeth a bigger quill. <laughs> what, what, what is it, the, 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 how you say, wobble one's fellow doing? I think it be Shakespeare, you mad. Or ever. I'm getting all this down on vellum. Pitching queens, a disputed throne, a secret heir. This is bleeding theatrical gold dust. I would fain turn this all into a play. A pretty piece, Monsieur Wobble Wand. So... Queen Elizabeth, you admit a child of my union with the King of France could inherit the English throne? A child of Scots and English blood upon our throne, our people may just countenance. 
but one of blood half Scots and French. Mary, madam, would be like that all the courteous gentlemen of our land be transformed to prating rustic yeomen and, and, and a giant golden mole would decimate the gardens of our favourite palace. A giant golden mole? Aye, a mole, cousin. And if such a thing occurred, would you let my child by Francis claim the throne? <laughs> Madam, I see thee plan to cousin me. Nay, it would take much more monstrous horrors for me to acquiesce to such a thing. How much more? Oh, I don't know. If the pretender to the throne also caused a dozen lords to bound and bounce clean out of the house, and, and eleven noble ladies caper themselves into their very graves. Twelve lords a-leaping, eleven ladies dancing. Mr. Wobblewand, are you getting this all down? Every line. I think there may be a song in. Très bien. Please. Dearest cuz, I please continue. Well, we suppose there would also have to be, seeing as you are the Queen of Scots, Grace to boot, some pipers to proclaim the coming horror. At least ten and some drummers, though one feels not as great a number. And so, as this genuine Elizabethan phonograph recording ably demonstrates... The true claimant to the throne of Scotland and England is he who is descended from the line of Mary, Queen of Scots, and Francis II of France. And that man is I, Raoul Heliotrope. My God, Heliotrope. If this is true, it means you're... you're part French. It's my cross, strange trousers, and I'll bear it if it allows me to claim the throne of England. Never! Never, never, never! You shall never be coronated! Not while there's breath left in my body, cheese left in my pantry, and a note left on the fridge. And I think you know what I mean. You deny that I rode a giant mutant mustard mole to the very gates of Buckingham Palace, or that I visited the full twelve plagues of Christmas upon this nation? Of course not. To deny such commonplace occurrences would be insane. See last year's cereal and the Christmas special. But this ancient record, it cannot be genuine. Genuine it is. It has resided here for four whole centuries, hidden safe within this... The stone of scone? The stone of scone. Go on, take it. Take the record. Subject it to any test you will. It is genuine, as is my claim. Later that day, deep in the bowels of MI5 and a quarter, amidst the high-tech Baco foil-wrapped splendor of his research and development department, Sir Professor Patrick Greatermass is poised on the brink of the edge of another monumental waste of public resources. Professor Greatermass, how have you been getting on with your test to expose the fraudulence of the heinous heliotrope's villainous vinyl? Ah, strange trousers. Little Woman and I have been subjecting the record in question to projected advances in radioactive dating techniques. Radioactive projection? Indeed, we're actively projecting radios at it. Little woman, radio the trebuchet and let fly another wireless. Righto, Professor. Oh, oh, no, no, 
new, 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 disaster. Our half-timbered Art Deco Roberts, a new match for the intrinsic reinforced Renaissance long player. Time, I fancy, to break out the heavy artillery. Uh, little woman, load up my solid teak phonograph with optional attentive beagle accessory. As you wish, Professor. <laughs> A hit, a poppable hit. Professor Greatermass, whatever lunacy you are currently engaged in, we request you stop it at once. Another woman! Damnation! They're breeding. I believe. I believe that is the traditional prerogative of the female. You would yes, Stop gambling around the sharpened stilettos of that stationary cupboard, Netahari. Sir Royce, what are you doing out of your life support unit at this hour of the year? Oh, uh, just taking air. Carry on, everyone, don't mind me. Just continue working as if I wasn't... Where am I? We're in research and development, sir. Excellent, excellent. What do they do here? Miss Pencil Skirt, what are you doing down in R&D? Oh, Bentley, perhaps I just came down to see you. Would you like that, Bentley? Would you like me to go down all the way to the basement, just for you? Down, down to the very bottom of the shaft, just to make you happy? Is that what you want, you absolutely terrible man? Pencil skirt, take your filthy voice off that innocent fellow at once. Marjorie, dear, be a love and sign this. A requisition form? What are we getting now? Not more impounded accordions. Not getting, releasing Heliotrope's record. We're releasing a record? Perhaps it'll be a hit. What's going on? This is my department, Pencil Skirt. You have no jurisdiction here. This is an order and it comes from the very top. Uh, uh, top of the bill. Max Miller, Hoban Empire, 1939. No, sir. Not Max Miller. You, sir. Me? Yes, sir. But I've never played the Mahoven Empire. Yes, but you are head of this department, sir. Am I? So when did Max Miller leave? <laughs> never mind. Can't be helped. Carry on, Miss Pencil Skirt. Yes, I think what Sir Royce means to say is that, given the potential gravity of Rail Heliotrope's claim to the throne, it is beholden of us to have all the evidence thoroughly and independently examined by a foremost expert in a field. Don't you mean the foremost expert in the field? Well, both, actually. We are bringing in a scholar and archaeologist who gave invaluable assistance to the Allies during the last war. You don't mean... A hero whose manly daring do... Helped wrest many powerful religious relics from the clutches of the Nazi war machine. Surely not. A whip-cracking, leather, fedora-wearing, trowel-wielding legend in his own mud-splattered, overtight denim trousers. Oh, dear God, no. None other than Professor Indiana Phil. Hello, my lovers. <laughs> Professor Phil. My God. You're even scruffier than your photograph suggests. Now, Bentley, let's get straight down to business. I've read over the site report, seems a bit of a pig's breakfast to me, so we've begun by opening a trench across the car park. It'll take a while to get down to the archaeology, as we've got a lot of layers to get through. Um, layers of cars! 
lovely. Sounds like we're up and running at last. Now they've got that shocking new DB7 out of the way. But that's my new DB7. Not for much longer. I spoil now, I reckons. But why are you digging up our car park? We already have the evidence here, in this very room. Oh, I know that. No, I just likes to do a, a good big trench, open as quick as possible. Helps me to think, clears the cobwebs. Now, where's this record? Right here, Indiana Phil. Lovely, let's have a shifty. Ooh, wow, that's interesting. That's very interesting. <laughs> Well, it certainly smells to me like a genuine Elizabethan 78. Galloping dynastic terrors. Listen to me, Professor. It is essential to the survival of the British way of life, and by British I mean, of course, English, that the authenticity of Heliotrope's claim be resolved quickly. And by quickly I mean, of course, unfavourably. Which is why it is of vital importance that you employ every scientific test available and every academic theory at your disposal. And by that I mean, of course, fabricate any spurious cobblers you fancy that will fairly, objectively and dispassionately brand this record extremely fraudulent with extreme prejudice. Now, I do hope you're not attempting to compromise the academic independence of Professor Phil's archaeological research. Oh, Bentley, that would be a serious disciplinary matter. Unless, of course, that's what you want. Is that it, Bentley? Do you want to be disciplined? Do you? You naughty, naughty boy. Um, no... Right, I'll get to work on this straight away. I've already set up my field laboratory. Where? In a field. Like one next to the pub, obviously. Cheery boy, my lovers. Oh, and warn me if you see any Nazis. I don't hold with Nazis. Uh, well then, uh, Professor Phil, allow me to show you out. <laughs> And that got rid of him. Later that evening, Bentley's strange trousers, along with Professors Greater Mass, Lesser Mass, and Little Woman, waits impatiently for news. I wonder what's taking Professor Phil so long. Fear not, Bentley, you cannot rush true scientific progress. Calls himself a professor, does he? Well, I've never seen him lunch at the Athenaeum, and I swear that disgusting plaid shirt of his isn't the result of single-needle stitching. He doesn't even affect a bow tie. I mean, really, these days Oxford will dish out degrees to almost anyone with inbred genes and a passing familiarity with an irrelevant language. Before long, they'll be attempting to educate the Welsh. No, I think we're now straying into the realms of pure fantasy. Besides which, Professor Phil may look like the product of a shameful midnight union between a minor Thomas Hardy novel and the sale at Oxfam. But beneath the revolting brim of that filthy leather hat is concealed one of the finest filthy leather mines this filthy leather country has ever produced. Ah, Bentley, Patrick, Hubert, Marjorie. I'm so glad you're here. Professor Phil is ready to announce his findings. Shouldn't we wait for Sir Royce? Sir Royce conveys his apologies, but he's currently enjoying his nightly colonic irrigation. So, Professor Phil, if you'd be so kind... Right, oh, after literally an entire afternoon's ceaseless digging and drinking a pint of beer, I've discovered that... Wait! As the outcome of this investigation affects my future more than anyone's, it only seems fair I should be in attendance. Raoul Heliotrope. 
And Medea Black. But this is a covert British government department, veiled in secrecy, shrouded in mystery, a riddle wrapped in a puzzle, sequestered in an enigma, and buried inside 400 tons of bomb-proof concrete. An impregnable fortress of lead-lined, dead-bolted, and cold lock behind a million levels of indecipherable alphanumeric encryptions. How could you possibly break in? You left the key under the mat. Curses! <laughs> I knew at this time of heightened security I should have stuffed it in the plant pot. Oh, you idiot steams trousers! Professor Phil, what have you discovered? Well, Hubert, it looks like my first impressions were correct. This is an authentic Elizabethan 78 long playing phonograph record, pressed in 1578 from finest civet cat. With a decorated vellum outer and sleeve notes by William Shakespeare. Convinced now, strange trousers? Never. But surely the content of the recording cannot be real. Well, I hate to say it, Bentley, but everything indicates this is a genuine primary source account of an authentic second-hand reenactment of a bona fide third-party rumour put about one Friday night over a couple of pints of grog down the cock in Deptford. What an outstanding provenance. Oh, sorry about that. I think these shorts have shrunk a bit in the wash. <laughs> Shameless laundry label non-compliance. But Indiana Phil. How have you managed to authenticate the recording with such accuracy? Oh, that's the easy bit, my darling. I simply employed advanced comedic dating techniques. You mean you sliced the cross-section through the jokes in the record, thus creating a unique pattern of audience laughter and silent contempt, which would potentially allow you to date the record to within a single year? That's right. Proper job. But, Professor, in order to contextualise this data, surely you'd need a single, unbroken litany of unoriginal gags dating back to at least the Reformation. Well, can Dad's on at Palladium, any? <laughs> but the sleeve notes, Indiana Phil, are they really by William Shakespeare? Undoubtedly. As we can see, these notes start off economically enough, an exposition explaining the rivalry between the Queens of England and Scotland, but before he gets too far, in the writer gets distracted. Crowbar's in a slapstick bit with a maid, a cross-dressing subplot, and a scene with a wise fool who is as sagacious as he is irritating. And what happens then? I don't know, I got bored and gave up. No one's been able to stick it out to the end without falling asleep. My God! So it truly is by Shakespeare. That's what I said, and that. And thus, the final piece falls into place. My claim to the throne is authenticated. Medea. Yes, my darling. Order Westminster Abbey to stand by. Then tell the BBC to unwrap a fresh dimbleby. The coronation <laughs> is back on. With one slight amendment to the advertised programme. Of course, Raoul. Soon I shall be king, and you, my beauteous Medea, shall be my queen. Oh, but darling, will the British people accept me as consort to their monarch? Well, let's see. Greek name, insane ideas, as subtle as a sock of sand in the kisser. Yes, I think you'll work out quite nicely. The next morning, as Bentley's strange trousers and his colleagues from MI5 and a quarter file nervously into Westminster Abbey, 
they become aware of a baleful presence staring down at them from the rafters. Ooh, what are those horrid creatures whirling around the eaves? Let me see. Scaly dinner suits, leathery bow ties. Oh, good Lord, Marjorie, it can only be... A flock of dimblebees. Goodness, I've never seen so many roosting in one place. It's this damned second coronation. If a state event is left out overnight, the dimblebees start circling. <laughs> ah, it's getting so decent folk can't so much as go out in the street without being narrated. Stridently proclaims the mud-spattered mummerset archaeologist. See what I mean? Sling your up, bleeding commentary vultures! My lords, ladies, and money, you join us, your official Dimblebees, in our specially constructed BBC area for this quite unprecedented and surely license fee justifying consecutive Coronation Day. It's the second half, so the clergy have had their oranges, the choir and the congregation have changed ends, but still the crowds are gay, the weather by curious, and the overtime payments for BBC announcers absolutely superb. This is, once again, a truly unique day, far uniquer than the previous unique day, which will surely forever live in the hearts, minds and wallets of this great, increasingly bankrupt sovereign nation as pretty damned unique. But not quite as unique as this one, which on the scale of uniqueness is rather dashed close to being entirely singular. Today we'll see the favoured golden child of a great historic dynasty solemnly take their rightful place before the adoring crowds as the supreme figurehead of this mighty nation. But enough of me. In other news, some knob gets a big metal hat. Right, well, here we go again. Lords, bishops, more bishops, even more bishops, beards, men in dresses, more beards, beards in dresses, wizards, whoopsies, foreigners, racists, racist foreigners. Oh, hang on, he's not coming this time, is he? <laughs> Pomp, circumstance, well done, wobbles. Hush, breathy voice, money for old rope, etc., etc. Ah, now, this is new. Raoul, the first Queen of Scotland and King of England, is entering the Abbey, borne upon the back of his especially cultured giant coronation chicken. <laughs> Greetings, my people! <laughs> yes! His Majesty certainly seems to have won over the British public with this ungodly feathered marvel. As the King dismounts his mighty avian steed, the assembled crowds get their first proper look at his beautiful, full-bustled coronation dress, exquisitely tailored in purple tartan silk with an eyely whisky trim, support tights and full Calvinist underpinnings. The king's frock is further embellished with a 12-yard train, a 6-foot van, and 10-inch bicycle, which is being ridden awkwardly for comic effect, as ceremony dictates by the commissioner of the Great Seal and the invoicer of the fabulous otter. The royal train is now being boarded by six ladies-in-waiting, who, after their reassignment surgery, will be six ladies-in-being. Lady Bracken, Lady Broken, Lady Breezeblock, Lady Pitprop Hunting Weasel, 
Lady Wee and Lady State Ascot. And don't they all look absolutely divine in their ankle-length Art Nouveau evening wallpaper and chemically decommissioned Soviet army boots? Following four paces behind the king in deference to tradition and in accommodation of her frankly prodigious knockers is the royal consort and the queen-in-waiting, Miss Medea Medusa Clytemnestra Janice Stygian Black. And quite an impression she's making, too, in her voluminously skirted black latex ball gown with solid Bakelite underbust corset, Corinthian-styled titanium nipple pasties, fully circular dirigible rubber crinoline, and nine-inch heeled rhino horn ballet boots. We rattle through all the dull bits you've heard before, and now as the ceremony reaches its absolute average, we can see that King Raoul is being prepared for the ritual anointing of the monarch with holy oil. Here comes the holy oil now, being poured from its holy bottle by the holy hand into a wholly inappropriate vessel. The holy oil is now being brought up to the preordained cooking temperature... The state ships of England and ceremonial cod of Wales are thrown in by the Earl Marshal and now the younger sons of the Dukes of the Royal Blood of the Blood Royal approach each reverentially hearing bearing a selection of sugar-rich fatty chocolate and caramel-themed confectionery bear which too in their turn are cast solemnly into the sealing oil in accordance with the ancient Scottish law. And so, as his fritters bob impressively to the surface, the crown is placed upon the royal bonds, and the queen-stroke king turns to address her, his people. Loyal subjects, we now pronounce ourselves Queen of Scotland, King of England, Northern Ireland, and God-Emperor of the less revolting parts of Wales. God save! The Queen, King, and Emperor. God save Thank you, thank you, my highly organized and free-thinking sheep. <laughs> For the first decree of my glorious reign, I turn to you, my steadfast, untrustworthy, toadying MPs, to inform you that the August recess shall commence early, as I shall forthwith dissolve Parliament. In hydrochloric acid. My God, Miss Pencil Skirt, what's Heliotrope doing with that patented Himmler Crippen Hague rustproof acid bath? It's the crown, Bentley. It's gone to his head. Well, that saved on a whole load of expenses claims now, didn't it? And as the liquefied remains of the lower chamber are formally mopped with great dignity into a stinking open sewer, Queen King Raoul continues her his address to the nation. In the new United Kingdom, we shall have no need of a parasitical license fee guzzling nepotistic old boys' club for upper middle class dilettantes. Therefore, 
I hereby proclaim the abolition of the BBC, the rescindment of its charter, and the termination of its entire staff, effective forthwith. And as King Raoul I formally declares the official cessation of the BBC, he removes from the folds of his lovely evening dress a portable rocket launcher, points it up towards a television commentary position, squints the royal eye, squeezes the royal trigger finger, and... Hmm. We don't appear to have any more lines in this script. Well, that got rid of them. In other news, the police and security services will now fall exclusively under the command of the royal household, with the exception of MI5 and a quarter, which we, His Majesty, disband with immediate effect. Great labor exchange horrors! Oh, Bentley, we're out of a job. Now, my beautifully Scottish people, let the purple reign of heliotrope commence! Is this the end of MI5 and a quarter? Will our heroes be signing on Monday morning? And is Raoul Heliotrope really now Queen of Scotland? Find out in the next Claymore Tingling episode, A Tyranny in Tartan. The Retune of the King was written by Darren Gooding and performed by Damien Bell, Neri Bolan, Sarah Jane Derrick, Darren Gooding, David Hughes, Jerry McKee and Richard Potter with assistance from the audience. Music by Tina Gooding and Darren Tansley. Sound engineering and recording was by Darren Tansley. Foley sound effects were performed by Matthew Orchard and Richard Potter. The audience wrangler was Dean Akin jones The podcast was recorded at Colchester Arts Centre and is an I Hear Voices theatre company production. Production.